is pharmacy a commodity or not, right? Because healthcare is very personal. Mm -hmm. Pharmacy benefits are the most utilized healthcare benefit out there. Hello, everyone. I'm Kenzie McEvely, the producer and host of McGowan Braybender's Employee Benefits Podcast, Side Effects. In today's episode, the goal for our listeners is to have them leaving this conversation more educated about the basics of pharmacy. Dr. Jeff Eicholtz is MB's Director of Pharmacy Solutions, and the variety of his background really gives him knowledge on so many different pharmacy topics. We discuss PBM management, drug adherence, the role of pharmacists, clinical programs that organizations need to consider, and so much more. HR professionals and C-suite execs will learn exactly what they should be doing at the start of the new year. So without further delay, here is Side Effects, episode number 131. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Side Effects. We are now in episode two of our four-part series about pharmacy, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chief Marketing Officer Dave Homan, and also our guest is our Director of Pharmacy Solutions, Dr. Jeff Eicholtz. So thank you again both for being here. Great to be here. Thanks. Comfy on our couch here in the Strategy and Innovation Room. Yeah, we're trying a little bit change of location here. Right, right. And so last show, we introduced you all to Dr. Jeff. He's been with ME for almost half a year already, right? Yeah, it's been great. 2023. Um, We learned a lot about his history, his background, and the value that he brings to MB. So we also covered some of the hot topics that are in the news right now that listeners have probably been seeing in the headlines. And that's a great segue to what today's episode is, which we're going to touch on what HR professionals and some C-suite execs should be thinking about. And then relate that to PBM management and a little definition, PBM we covered in last episode, but stands for pharmacy benefit manager. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So for purposes. Gold star for me. Yeah. So for purposes of this discussion, um, we have a lot of different listeners, different group sizes, funding arrangements, things like that. I think for purposes of this discussion, Jeff, we'll we'll assume the group is over 100 employees and we'll assume they're self-funded to keep things pretty simple yep. for our conversation. Sounds great. And usually that's where employers can start to see and have some options in terms of flexibility and what they can do with their particular plan and changes that they can make. Okay, great. Okay. So start of the new year, what should our HR leaders and execs be reviewing and planning? I was going to say, that's just it. Reviewing and planning, Let's right? You, 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 take, plan. you, you take a look and reflect upon what was driving your costs and utilization for, you know, the previous year or what kind of trends you have seen, and then really planning to make sure that you're trying to account for them in any ways that you possibly can. Do you need to put in more plan design changes? What about, you know, premiums, co-pays? What changes can you really make there and really just plan for that? And is an RFP necessary? And we'll get into some of the requests for proposals and some of that complexity that's there as well. But take a look at that kind of in the first quarter or as soon as that data becomes available to start laying the groundwork for what it is that you're going to do throughout the course of the next year to already get ready for the next year. Yeah. So Jeff, a quick question. As you're looking through the different types of reporting, there's the standard carrier reporting with the pharmacy claims. And then there's data analytics, which gives you a little bit meteor approach and and different looks at different data sets does it make a difference when you're looking at pharmacy claims and what are I mean, I would say usually so right is that you get a very high level and um, with some of the first past carrier reporting or what's going to be in your you know annual reviews or monthly or quarterly summaries or anything like that but then you oftentimes have to 
go a couple of layers deeper to really key in on what is going to be driving something or why is that particular cost being driven in or or something like that. So it's not uncommon that as I'm looking at clients that we'll see the first report, I'll have some questions, and then that'll generate some additional reports that come out of that or at least additional conversations to go a couple of layers deeper into it to really get to the root of what you're trying to figure out. Is that information readily available from the carriers or is it um, somewhat limited and what is shared? I was going to say in a self-funding arrangement, usually if you're asking the right questions, right, in terms of kind of driving into that, the smaller the groups are, less likely, less likely mm-hmm. or more difficult it might be in order to get there because it is also, does the recipient understand really what you're asking for, know where to go within the organization to get it, and some of that organizational navigation can get into it as well. Okay. So you're, you've looked at the data, you've looked at the trends, and now it's time to roll up your sleeves and start making modifications yeah. or wholesale changes. <laughs> like, where do you start? Is there a book like PVMs for dummies or how do you approach that? Somebody probably has somebody <laughs> probably out there somewhere. If not, we should, uh, you know, take a sidebar yeah. and start thinking about that a little bit. But, you know, as, as I really try to think about it, there are four kind of foundational key aspects to think about in a self-funded plan that kind of serve as that foundation of really where to start. And you're looking at kind of your co-pays and your co-insurance, which most people are pretty familiar with in terms of the out-of-pocket expenses. Mm-hmm. There's a formulary or a drug list that's associated with it that is driving some of the, the coverage and preferred products, what pharmacies you can go to or network options. And then broadly clinical programs, which is a large ranging, you know. Um, say, what does that include? <laughs> The big ones to start off with from a foundational aspect, um, really around utilization management, Mm -hmm. uh, prior authorization, step therapy, quantity limits, which we'll dive into a little bit more. But I think prior authorizations, most people are aware of are pre-certification on the medical side, right? Mm -hmm. Very similar on the pharmacy side as well, serving as a foundation to manage that utilization as well as drive the cost effective or lower cost products. But then there's also... A lot of PBMs have a whole host of other clinical programs that can help members stay adherent or do disease management or offer um, some of that more holistic care that is out there that we referred to and talked a little bit about in the first one. The other one is really around drug utilization reviews and, you know, having that at the point of sale in terms of pharmacy, in terms of the retail pharmacies, which is pretty standard, Mm -hmm. but there can be some decisions that get made in terms of, do you want to do a hard edit? Do you want to do a soft edit? That's really getting down into the weeds, but there are safety programs um, that the PBMs are administering as well. And Joe, just having a thorough review of all of those and making sure that they're in place. Yeah. So you just mentioned drug adherence programs. Like you have a prescription called in, you get the prescription filled, you take your medicine. I mean, do you really need a, is, is drug adherence really that big of an issue that you have to have special programs for it? It can be. And in, and I think technology over the course of the last 10 years or so has really helped with that, right? Is that we can now set reminders on our phones where you used to not really be able to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of different apps that are out there and um, adherence reminders. And sometimes it's as simple as giving people tips on getting it into your daily routine, right? 
put it somewhere that you're always, you know, put it by, you know, your toothbrush. Yep. Hopefully you have good dental care as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, some of those types of things to just get people to think about it differently mm -hmm. if they're struggling with it. And I think we've all been there for any particular item. Like if you get a mental block, you sometimes have a mental yeah. block and you oh, yeah. miss the really basic stuff that somebody else will do on an ongoing basis to solve any particular problem. Uh, and it, it seems like that's kind of low hanging fruit with a group. It's yeah. like if you just took your medicine, I mean, how many problems could that prevent from escalating to further issues, especially with chronic conditions? Right. Especially with chronic conditions. The challenge sometimes with that is how do you calculate or how do you determine the ROI, right? We can sit here and say it makes a lot of sense if those programs aren't free or they're being charged, where are you recouping the money for that investment, right? Yeah. So a lot of times this gets into also almost a philosophical conversation of what is the right thing to do for your employees and your members and your patients and know that it might cost a little bit more, but longer term, you're going to have a healthier patient population, yeah. right? And so that's interesting to me as a, as a pharmacist and a clinician sitting in some of the meetings is you talk about employee turnover. Where do you invest the dollars to get the most bang for your buck based upon the longevity of, you know, your employee population that's in there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you were just talking about formulary a minute ago with the PBM. Do, do PPMs just have one formulary? Do they have multiple formularies? Most have multiple formularies and that's kind of evolved what, over time. And why is that? Um, it has to do with the number of products that are really covered or available. And so... Man, that, that makes it all so would, much more Wouldn't complex. you just want to upgrade every group to the newest and best? I mean, what is the... I'm sure there's a cost. <laughs> oh. Usually there's not usually there's not a really? usually there's not a cost unless you start to tie in some of the rebate dollars that are associated with it okay. in terms of offsets on the back end, right? And so this again gets into sometimes if you limit product availability, you can drive a better price, but if you have utilization on those products, you're disrupting patients. They have to make a change. Right which PBMs and pharmacies are very accustomed to. And so those types of changes typically aren't as bad or impactful in terms of employee noise and disruption than I think employers think they are. Right. Um, not to minimize the fact that anybody has to change a medication is all like healthcare is very personal. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the other thing to understand is that those formularies, regardless of how broad they are, how narrow they are, um, in terms of coverage of brand name products versus generic products, the PBMs will have the same clinical parameters for all of them. So it's not to say that one that covers less product isn't as quote unquote clinically effective um, as some of the other ones, right? You still have to have your product to treat allergies, for mm -hmm. an example, or a lot of those are over the counter now. Mm -hmm. A lot of the proton pump inhibitors like Brylosec are over the counter now, but it's not like you don't have a product to treat cancer or to treat multiple sclerosis. Right. Um, you may only have two or three products to choose from instead of six or seven. Mm -hmm. So that's really how they're getting into that and some of the changes that are taking place there. Okay, and so what about network options then? Yeah, so network option is really which, how many pharmacies you can go to and like the number of pharmacies is staggering, right? It's like 60, 70,000 oh, yeah. <laughs> pharmacies There's in a lot of the court. networks. <laughs> yep. And there are two major chains uh, mm -hmm. that 
and and usually most employers are in that broad network and yep. it has most of the pharmacy most of the independents that are in there not all of them um but most of them are there and they have most of the major chains and a lot of times you have that utilization relatively split and so it's difficult to make a move to one or the other mm -hmm. but it's something to take a look at and especially if you don't have one of those major chains where you're located Maybe ask, yeah. right? Because in, and it's not great savings. It's a couple of percentage points, maybe, um, off of your discounts that you have at retail. Mm -hmm. um, but if you don't have it, or you only have a handful of members, it's a consideration to at least take a look at um, that is in there. And then, if you're in a rural location, small employer, you have hometown community pharmacy. Maybe you don't need either, right? Yeah, and so yeah. you can start to take a look at that. But most of them are usually in that broad network, and you can go to any pharmacy that you see, and um, that's pretty common. Mm -hmm. There's so many decisions that go into that. I mean, yeah, you have to just think about where you're located. If there isn't, isn't one of those big chains close by, there is always a local mom and pop pharmacy. It's just crazy. You, these yeah. HR people have I, so many things to think about. <laughs> yeah, and, and I do think that I, I almost feel like the – Today, the the patient pharmacist relationship has has supplanted the the longstanding like patient doctor relationship totally. because there are, there are practices that have been bought up that and you don't always see the same doctor when you go and things like that. But I I know that when I go to the pharmacy, it seems like the pharmacist always seems to know the old person that's in front of me in line and their whole story. Totally. And they got to hear it before I get up there. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it they're one of the most accessible healthcare providers that's mm -hmm. out there, right? Is mm -hmm. there's yeah. pharmacies on every corner you can go in, you can ask questions and Ours checks the blood pressure when you go in. They're, they're doing patients. a lot more healthcare yep. services, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of vaccinations mm -hmm. are taking place where yep. you used to have to make an appointment. So it's a very accessible healthcare and not a healthcare provider, a knowledgeable healthcare provider. And it gets into some of the questions of is pharmacy a commodity or not, right? Because healthcare is very personal. Mm -hmm. Pharmacy benefits are the most utilized healthcare benefit out there, right? You think about it, you're on a chronic medication. Hopefully you're getting that script filled 12 times a year or maybe <laughs> four times a year yeah. if you're getting a 90-day supply um, at your local pharmacy. But it, it's a very utilized benefit and people are in the stores and grocery stores and big box stores for all kinds of their shopping and um, it can be a personal relationship that's there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we spoke a couple minutes ago about the drug adherence program gaps in care for prescriptions, but there are other clinical programs that are out there and available. What, what are some of those programs and which ones would you look at and say every group should have this or some form of this program? Yeah, I think taking a look at care management or disease management, either on the medical side or the pharmacy side for diabetes is the next big one. I think that specialty medications have gotten the headlines over the past five years or so. Um, now with some changes that are going on there in terms of biosimilars or alternatives available for Humira. Um, diabetes is probably number two um, okay. and could very easily become the number one cost driver, I think. So it's going to be one, two that is right there with wow. your anti-inflammatory wow. and specialty medications. So thinking about what are we doing mm -hmm. for the diabetic population and having a strategy really around that um, so we don't get caught by surprise. Yeah. <laughs> and um, 
you know, is one of the other key areas to really think about and really be focusing on. And it's been, diabetes has been driving a lot of spend because of some of the new drugs and the new products that were out there. Um, over the past 10 years or so, diabetes was treated with a lot of generic medications. Okay. And there are newer brand name medications that are more effective than the generic medications were, but with that comes an increase in cost, mm -hmm. right? So you're paying more to have a potentially better treatment that is out there, but then associated with that, there are lifestyle modifications that can be made, diet, exercise that also help control diabetes that mm -hmm. can reduce some of that medication usage. And this is in the perspective of being a type two diabetic who is not use, utilizing insulin, right? Um, for that perspective, I think on the good side, there have been some changes in insulin pricing recently. But the cost ask, of that the has dramatically yeah. dropped yeah. Um, for those type one diabetics. Mm -hmm. But type two diabetics is the majority of the population that isn't utilizing the insulin that their body is producing as effectively and is leading to some challenges. What's caused the insulin prices to bottom out? Has it been government pressure? It's been some regulations that have really changed some of the pricing mechanisms associated with that um, as part of some of the recent legislation that was mm -hmm. really passed that um, there's also been pressure in terms of the unaffordability of insulin, yeah. you know, for a lot of for a lot of patients. So um, some of that pressure and discussion, you know, causes companies to rethink some of their policies around it. So there's been a little bit yeah. of a mix that has been associated with that. Okay. And, nice to hear. And <laughs> one other question, besides uh, the weight loss drugs, which area has like just, it's turned into an arms race? You've seen companies just throwing tons of resources and money at getting in that space. Is it the anti-inflammatories? I'd say it's anti-inflammatory and specialty, just specialty, specialty in mm -hmm. general. Okay. Um, you know, in, in the science is phenomenal on some of those specialty medications and making a, a real big difference in patient lives. But mm -hmm. you're starting to see smaller and smaller patient populations that are impacted by a certain disease start to have treatments available to them that maybe they haven't had any available treatments or very successful treatments in the past, the challenge when you have a smaller patient population, but it costs the same or more amount of money to make, yeah. mm -hmm. you have to be able to, to recoup that. Wow. And um, that leads to high drug prices sometimes yeah. when you're trying to recoup that on a finite timeline with a small patient population. Mm -hmm. So are there any other items that we want leadership to, to think of on their radar at the beginning of the year? You know, I think that as you're planning and thinking about what your strategy is, do you need to evaluate vendors? Do we need to do an RFP? I think one thing not to lose sight of is understanding what kind of notifications do you have to give to your current vendor? Yeah. So you don't get... <laughs> In a situation where you ran out of time, uh, essentially. And, and most we see 90 days, which, you know, by the fourth quarter, you need to have your benefits pretty well locked up uh, anyway to be able to communicate them to your patients or to your members. Uh, but there are some that have 180 days. So, you know, okay. you need to be in a position to say, am I making a decision, not necessarily making a decision in July, but at least letting your, your partner or your carrier and your vendor know that, hey, I might be making a move and just being cognizant of any of those types of uh, notifications that need to get made. It's all about the preparation.
yeah. planning. Let's assume then that you make the decision. You're 120 days out. You're golden. Um, when you decide um, to make that change that's out there, how big how big of a change is there going from one PBM to another? I think from, I mean, there's some work involved in terms of making sure that your benefit intent stays the same and that your coverages are similar to what you have. And there's a laundry list of questions that, mm -hmm. you know, we can help clients go through and talk with carriers and vendors about, hey, what's the current benefit set up and moving some of the, those types of things. Ideally, you like to try to minimize as much patient disruption as possible, or at least have it be a choice in terms of a decision, right? We've talked about network. Maybe the decision is, well, we're going to move PBMs and we're going to limit our network, right? And so those yeah. are two different things that you need to communicate to your patient population so the new vendor doesn't wrongly get blamed as not <laughs> yeah. having the same amount of coverage that's out there, right? But I think that that's one thing that you're... That, we can help our clients really kind of understand what do they have in place? Do they want to keep that in place? Do they want to make any changes associated and, with it? And one last question. What is the optimal contract period? Because I've heard uh, people, it's changed over time. People used to think the longer the you get locked in, you've got price guarantees. But then we realize that that's not always longer is not better. Longer isn't necessarily always better. I think everybody likes to see a year to year and there are some vendors out there that will go for a year to year contract. On the flip side of that, if you have a three year contract in place and want some of that stability that's there, you can still work in some provisions in terms of do you have the same price for those three years? Are you seeing increases in price, you know, in those mm -hmm. three years in terms of increases in discounts? Um, so we'd like to see those in there. You can put in provisions about having a market check that says, you know, after the first year, every year, after 18 months, we're going to make sure that the last year of your contract, for example, is still competitive. And really, that reduces some of the risk that is associated with that. Because to your point, there's always time, effort, some sweat hopefully not many tears in order to <laughs> in order to make a move, right? Yeah. Um, and I think patients and members like to really understand their benefits. So there are some things with a longer contract that you can get improvements year over year built in to reduce the risk of that longer term contract. Okay. So to wrap up, do we have any um, comments or questions or topics we didn't hit that we want our listeners to know? Tune into the next podcast where Ooh. we're going to go more Ooh. in depth on pricing and contracts and yep. general education. We're going to talk about how to choose a pharmacy benefit manager and also what's involved in an RFP. So, Dave, thank you for joining me. It was great. I love this discussion. And Dr. Jeff will be back for our next episode. If you have any questions about this one, you can email me at Kenzie at HealthierBirthdays.com. Or Dave at HealthierBirthdays.com. Or Jeff at HealthierBirthdays.com. That's right. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time on Side Effects. Thanks. <laughs>